Hello and welcome to the Haskin Cast Podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, here back for another week with another absolutely wonderful guest. We're going to get to her shortly. Very little to update you guys on this week. Uh, I've actually uh, finished up and released the album Dreamscape. It is now available everywhere. Uh, slowly creeping up in different places. It is now on, uh, of course, you can link from my website, but it is now on uh, Bandcamp and iTunes and Apple Music and Google Play and a couple other places waiting for it to show up on Amazon. And Amazon always seems to be the one that uh, kind of takes a little extra time to get things done. They're also probably the busiest since they handle such a variety of things besides just music, whereas like iTunes, Apple Music, Google Play, they're really designed just for movies and music. Amazon does all that and a ton of other stuff. So uh, grab the album, take a listen. Uh, if you have some feedback, I'd love to hear what you have to say. You can uh, reach me at scott at scotthaskin.com. Love to see some reviews, uh, especially on iTunes and Spotify. I think it's on Spotify now, too. I'll have to check. Uh, if not, it will be shortly. And, um, you know, the, the process continues. I'm really excited to have this album out because it really, uh, really brings back my youth. It's some of the uh, collection of some of the first originals or first instrumentals that I wrote and going back to 95 and uh, really happy to have had uh, taken the time to revamp some of them and, you know, put a little bit of modernization into them. I tended to be very repetitive as a composer when I was first starting out, if it was fun to play, I just kept playing it and just kept adding to it instead of coming up with different transitions and different parts. So I found a way to kind of minimize some of the repetitiveness, uh, updated a little bit more in sound quality than, than writing, but uh, I did have to uh, be a producer a little bit. So hopefully folks are enjoying that. I have had some wonderful comments come in so far. Very grateful to everybody who's listened, who's purchased it, who's enjoyed it who didn't enjoy it, but still listen to it. And uh, especially uh, anyone who's taken time to reach out to me directly. So please check out the album, uh, rate it, review it. Same with the podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it on whatever app that you listen to podcasts on. Um, iTunes is an Apple podcast are like the biggest ones because people listen to more on that than any other format. So uh, if you're going to leave a review, if you want to leave it there, I would greatly appreciate it. If not, feel free to leave it on whatever platform you're listening on. But I am not, I personally, as a user, am not on all platforms. I don't have access to all of that feedback. So if you have left a review or rating or anything there, I may not have seen it. But if you did, I still appreciate it. Thank you very much. So next week, I am going to be doing... Um, a different kind of episode, something uh, interesting based on the timing of everything that's going on in the entertainment world. Uh, one big thing in particular, and uh, some of you may know already what I'm talking about, but next week's episode will be all about that. And then I'll be back to a regular episode the week after. So hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it and it'll be fun. I always say hopefully you'll enjoy it because I don't put things out there that I don't hope people will enjoy. So it seems kind of weird to say it, but it also seems kind of weird not to say it. I don't know. The whole thing is just weird. But this week, this very week coming up right now, I have an amazing guest, one of the most beautiful souls I have ever, ever stumbled across in this life or any past life I may have had. 
she is just one of those people that, uh, you know, you you feel like she is just a ball of of joy and positive energy whenever you're around her. I've had the pleasure of having uh, some nice coffees with her several times when we both lived in Arizona. She's still in Arizona. I, of course, am in Las Vegas now. So we haven't seen each other in a while, but it was great to catch up, had a wonderful conversation. She's a fantastic actress, voice artist, acting teacher. Uh, she does some amazing voice characters, too. And she's recommended some very specific audiobooks of hers to listen to, which I have listed in the show notes. All of those links are available to uh, to the Amazon page. If they have other offshoots such as ACX or audible.com, uh, those are listed on the Amazon page. Also make sure to check the other purchasing options. If the one that you want is not available, it may be available there. Amazon's kind of weird that way because they don't show everything on the page. So you have to look for that one specific thing. For example, I don't buy movies very often. Sometimes I will rent a movie on Amazon if I have some marketing and things to do and I'm kind of bored with Netflix. Uh, but a lot of times, like it'll be an extra dollar for the HD version, which I don't really care because I'm not really going to watch the movie. I'm mostly going to listen to it. So I have to go to other options and there I can find the standard definition, which is a dollar less. Why throw away a dollar? A dollar is not a lot of money, but you know what? A dollar could do a lot of good to somebody else. So I'm not going to throw it away. And uh, so look on those options too. see what might be available for your listening pleasure. But I can tell you, uh, listening to her read, it's it's a very, very enjoyable experience. And uh, she's just a fantastic narrator, great at character voices. Uh, I, I can't recommend her enough. She's absolutely wonderful. So instead of me just sitting here and telling you about how great she is, how about you hear it from her how great she is? <laughs> Here's the lovely Alexandria Stevens. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next edition of the Haskin Cast podcast. And I am so excited to bring my guest on the show, the wonderful, the lovely, one of the dearest people in the world, Alexandria Stevens. Alexandria, how are you? <laughs> I'm wonderful. And thank you for those amazing words. You, you made my heart smile. Oh, good. Well, this is a good note to end on then. Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> It was the Sounds best good. show I've ever done. Uh, you, you know, you're just, you're one of those people that just, you're kind of like a, a little smile that just walks around and, and it radiates out to everyone around you. And that's one of the, the greatest things I just absolutely adore about you. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I I try to keep everything positive. I, I don't like negative vibes. So mm -hmm. I appreciate that you noticed that. Oh, sure. And I, I really have gotten to the point myself where I'm just really filtering so tightly what comes into my world because there's so much aggression and so much anger. And everybody thinks that they need to teach you 10 lessons in every post, whether you need to know them or not, uh, yeah. regardless of your thought process. And it's it's really uh, it's really a daunting thing to to be on social media at all right now. It is. And people are frustrated, you know, as they should be with all of this. They're frustrated. They're angry. And, you know, I would, I call it coming out in pimples. You know, you suppress it, you suppress it, and then it comes out in weird ways. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening, I think, is it's just coming out in very weird ways. That's a great way to put it. I think you're you're absolutely right. And I think it's it is manifesting with it it's kind of like you drudge up one thing and then that opens all these other doors and then those doors open other doors and people are just kind of letting out all this emotion that's been pent up normally on top of the you know the, the lockdowns and and not being able to go everywhere you want to go and those kind of things it's uh, it's it's a weird thing to adjust to. 
Yeah, and, you know, I don't want to say one way or the other, but we've also got what I call the mask wars. You know, these people are just battling each other over whether or not they want to wear a mask or the other guy should or, you know, it's literally a, a war. Right. Now, it, now you're in Arizona. Are there still, uh, can you still get fined for being out in public without a mask? At this point, I don't, I've not heard that at all. Um, are there other states that are fining? Uh, yeah, I know that uh, at least some counties in California are. We have that here in Vegas. I, I believe it's oh. a $300 fine. Oh, wow. I have not heard that. But, you know, I might be out of touch regarding that. Well, yeah, um, but I, uh, you know, I go out and I wear it because it just seems like it's the respectful thing to do. Um, it, it reduces stress. Right. So at the very least, it's the lesser of two evils, right? You're you're yeah. you're not taking a chance or you're you're only taking a chance if you don't do it. And you're taking precautions if you do. So if this thing is still as real as they claim it is, um then you're 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 playing the safe rather than sorry card. Plus, you're also putting yourself in a position of not getting as many dirty looks and people <laughs> right. being like kicking you out of the store um, because right. some stores, in fact, our uh, our grocery store just announced that uh, that you are required to wear a mask if you are to go in their store. Absolutely. And it kind of makes sense because for one, if it's a law here right now or, or whatever it would be called, um, it certainly makes sense that, you know, they're not going to say, hey, you can circumvent the current state of uh, of what we're supposed to do in our store. You know, that's what the directive is. So that's we have to adhere to that as a business. And we're responsible for keeping everybody safe, because if one person catches it and they trace it back to my store, well, now I'm open to a lawsuit. Right. And it's just, you know, you like you said, you're protecting yourself, and you really are protecting others. And what what's so bad about that? Yeah, but I agree. Um, you know, other than that, I people should do as they please. And um, you know, I just don't come near me if you're coughing and sneezing. That's all I ask. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's just you know it, it just goes back to being respectful of other people. And I, I understand people that are saying you know that that they don't believe that the virus is real. I understand that. There's people that are saying you know it's it's I have a right to go out in public. Yes, you do, but you just don't be a dick. You know, if we were just all nice to each other and considerate of each other, we just wouldn't have a lot of the problems that we do. And you're one of those people that just. You're, you're so kind and thoughtful of others. I, I just can't see you ever being one of those people that would just stand up and refuse because you're concerned about the way up you your uh, actions affect other people. Well, I mean, thank you for that. But I mean, it just feels like if all I have to do is wear a mask and it makes you happy and gives you peace, I can do that. Yeah. You know, and, and that's basically where I where I'm coming from. I mean, other than that, you know, let's move on because people get so upset. Like I said, these mask wars, um, I want peace for everybody and do as you please. Just, you know, if you are sick, please do stay away um, from, from others. Yep. I, I couldn't agree more. Anyway, what let's else? Let's talk about some good stuff. So yeah, you're, you're a, a wonderful actress. I had Gabrielle Stone on the show a few months back, and I remember that you did a film with her, and unfortunately it's uh, it's escaping my mind right now. It was a horror film, and you played a police officer. 
Yes, it was called Speak No Evil, That's and it right. actually got uh, picked up by, as she probably told you this, but it got picked up by Lionsgate, which was a great honor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very exciting. And it was it was interesting watching you uh, in a role of authority and knowing you as well as I do, being the sweet person that you are. It's, it's so fascinating and it really shows the, the talent that you have as an actor to be able to be aggressive and assertive, but still show a little bit of that sweet disposition at the same time. <laughs> was was that something that you tried to do or did that does that just come out? Uh, well, you know, um I teach acting. Uh, I have my own studio, and uh, my number one uh, priority is acting technique, which means creating a character, building a character, um, knowing them so well that it doesn't matter what the words are or the script is, that no matter what they give you, you know how that person would react and what they would say. Mm-hmm. That's my way of teaching. So, you know, I built the character and created her history, and I kind of had a feel of how she would be. And I thought, you know, she's a strong woman. She's a cop. She's worked hard. Um, She's no nonsense, but she still has a heart. And in the movie, when all the children are, you know, uh, destroyed, I won't say much more than that in case someone wants to watch it, Mm -hmm. um, it it tore her up. She, She was a empty vessel at that point. Yeah. And and it really came off well. I I loved seeing you in such a a role that was really contrast in some ways, at least to to who you are as a person. But it's also nice to see someone who has a stern role of authority in a film also being compassionate and human. Because it seems like in a lot of movies, uh, police are typically just either portrayed as sarcastic, arrogant people, or bumbling, almost Keystone Copish or just aggressive, hateful. There's not a lot of examples I can think of where, unless it's the lead character, there's a good, a well-rounded person that they're they're portraying. Well, thank you very much. That, that really feels great for you to say that. Um, all I can say is that I feel that, you know, even if your character only has a couple lines, they shouldn't be one-dimensional because humans are not one-dimensional. You know, we're... We're like snowflakes. We have all kinds of points, um, right? Right. So we're not just a jerk or authoritative. I mean, that person also has vulnerabilities. And I, I really do try. And I thank you for because you saw that. And I really appreciate that you, you saw my hard work. Definitely. And, and it, you know, you're not a tall person. You're not a big physical presence. But you definitely command attention when you're on screen. There's something about the way that you, I don't know if it's the way you carry yourself or what it is, but there's something about you that even if you're just walking in the background, you're a presence in everything I've ever seen you do. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's true. And I think that 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 outlook that you have really just kind of brings that out. The fact that you said, even if you only have one or two lines, they should be substance. And I feel like there's so many scenes where somebody just comes in and hands somebody a clipboard and says, here's the latest data or whatever. It, it's almost like they're just, I only have to say this line, so I just need to get through it. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like such a throwaway, why did you even bother to put this in, as opposed to somebody who could actually take that and say, here's the latest data. You know, somebody who could bring a little bit more importance to what they're doing. Right, right. And that's what I was saying is that if you know your character, like, you know, you know your best friend, 
if something happens to your best friend, you're pretty sure you know how that friend will react. Right. Um, if you know your characters really well, it, they can give you any line on the planet and you know how they're going to say that line. That's very true. But how much would you attribute is the actor's responsibility versus the director's responsibility for that? So let's say that you that you're the one that's handing somebody the clipboard and, you know, you might go on and say the line how you said it in rehearsal or maybe there wasn't a rehearsal. They're just filming it and you do it. How you know, if it if it plays as human or doesn't play as human, how do you how do you ascribe or, or you know what I mean? Like, how do you say this was up to the actor to do a better job or the director should have made that more human. Right. Um, well, you know, from my experience and from what I've heard and learned all, all these years being in the industry, um, the director, it's not really his responsibility to get you to be this emotion, that emotion. Um, that's your job. Mm -hmm. And when they audition you, you present how you're going to create that character and they say, yes, that's what I want. So it's kind of your responsibility to carry that over and create the character because the director has a lot to do. And he really doesn't have time to sit you down in the corner and say, okay, now let's rehearse this. And let, you know, he just needs you to be ready. Um, uh, that being said, um, if you should deliver something poorly or against the grain or like, wow, that was a choice, but it was, I've heard that one time in my career, that was a, that was a choice, but it was a really bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what the director would do. He would say, whether harshly or gently would say, you know what, that's not what we're looking for. We need more of this, or we need you to break down and cry, or I, I want it louder. Or, you know, that's where they would come in because you're not giving them what everybody is assuming that, you know, because you've been doing this character. Um, but it's rare that a director is going to direct you, even though as odd as that sounds. Right. But I get what you mean. You, you, you're kind of expected to bring a certain level of presence already. And then if you're not matching it, the director would then come in and go, um, that's not enough. Right. Right. Exactly. Now, what, what kind of directors, when you're working in film, because there's a difference between directing, say, an audiobook and directing a film, when you're directing a film or when you're in a film, what kind of direction do you like to get? I like, um, I like to be able to be left alone to work it myself. Like if I got the, if I went to the audition and I got the job, I know that's what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And I love if they give me that breath to, you know, create the way I want to create. Um, but I also love a director who will say after the shot or the scene, because sometimes, you know, you shoot 20, 20 times before the scene is over that uh, will give you some feedback and say, you know, I really liked that or, you know, that wasn't quite right. Or oh, some directors will tell you nothing. They'll just say, OK, next scene. And you're like, did you like it? Did you not like it? Should I improve? <laughs> should right. I, you know, should I stand up straighter or, you know, so I love a director who will set, give you that feedback. I just love that because it helps you to be better. You can't see yourself. Well, and you don't just want to assume that everything's okay because they've moved on to another scene. Maybe in their head, they're like, you know what, that just, we're not going to put that in the film. We'll just move on. You really don't know what they're thinking unless they communicate that. Exactly. And, you know, um, because we're so sensitive or most actors are very sensitive, if they don't say anything, the first thing you think is, oh my God, they hated me. 
right. or or I, they're so apathetic that you know it was such a mundane thing. I mean, and you know because we're sensitive, we go to those places, and I guess that's why I like a little feedback of, hey, that was great, or if it was awful, let me know, I'll make it better. Right. Yeah. It just seems like you you would want to make sure that your actors are comfortable. And if you're not communicating with them, then they go on to the next scene and they're like, okay, this is weird. And then the next scene, like, I, I don't know, I guess he's happy. It, you, your focus should be on your performance, not worried about all these external factors. Right, right. And, you know, like I said, directors have so much on their minds because they're they do everything, you know, that they're doing the crew, they're doing the cast, they're doing the scenes, they're doing the takes, they're doing you know, camera views, and they have so much going on, it may not even occur. Um, but the when I did do Speak No Evil, um, the director there was Rose, and he was just fantastic, because he left you to yourself, but he would tweak you, which felt good. It's like, oh, good, I can make it better. And he would always, you know, at the end say, hey, that was great, or he was, you know, very supportive. I, I loved him as a, a director. That's good. And the, and it really showed, I think, in the film, because, you know, horror is kind of hard to do. Um, you're not shooting in order. So you have to get in the mindset of where you are in that film, how much has progressed, how intense is the, the scene that you're shooting and find that setting on the dial, you know, to, right. to make that part because you can't be more afraid now than you're going to be in two minutes when things have escalated further. So it's it's a real fine line in horror. And if you I, I think that is one thing where the director is really important because they need to, to know where that level should be at for each character. Absolutely. Yeah, the continuity gets questionable <laughs> at that point. <laughs> yeah, true enough. Um, but, you know, everybody tries their best and it, most of the time it works. And sometimes there's those little glitches. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very true. Now, you also, uh, you do a lot of audiobooks, and you're such yes. a great narrator. Um, how do you, when you're reading the book, because you have to read the book before you even start recording it, you have to know who all your characters are, what the settings are, if there's words that you need to find out how to pronounce. True. Um, you know, it, and I'm not saying that to belittle you. I mean, you know, sometimes you might have words uh, or a scene that takes place in a foreign country. Um, there's words that I just look at, and I'm like, I have no idea how to pronounce that. But when you're reading the book for the first time, are you already kind of hearing the character voices in your head or do you just list them and go back and look at that later? Well, I do. Um, you know, one of the neat things about books is that the author will almost always describe the character very completely, uh, even sometimes before they speak their first word. So, you know, this man entered the room. He was tall and thin. Uh, he had a ratty face and no one trusted him. And he entered in a very soft, whispery voice. Um, you know that's how you're going to have to play that guy. Mm -hmm. So most of the time, the authors will be so descriptive, you know. And it's it's great because, okay, I can build the voice around how they describe this person. Right. And do you, do you have uh, – does it get more difficult the more characters that there are in a story? Yes, very much so. Um, at a certain point, I will just, I have a notebook and I'll just write the character's name. And, I'll, you know, because it's very physical when you do audio work. Um, so I'll say, you know, John Smith, and then I'll put shoulders slouched, hands clenched, head down, speaking in a very quiet, mousy voice um, to remind myself 
when he pops up again, okay, wh- what's this guy now? <laughs> Especially <laughs> if there's, you know, 10 or 20 characters. <laughs> sure. And, and some of those characters you might not see for 30 chapters. And, oh, and you, yeah. you have to remember how you did that voice or have your, your editor play it back for you so you can get back into that mindset. Like if yeah. you're reading a Grisham novel, Grisham is really, that's one of the reasons I stopped reading his stuff was because he would have these characters pop up 300 pages later. And like, I don't remember who this guy is now. Yeah. And why yeah. it's important. Right. Exactly right. And yeah, so in my notebook, you know, I may put a uh, sister of main character or, you know, person who's trying to undermine sister Mary, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, you know, yeah, that notebook is really important when there's a lot of characters. Well, yeah. And, and giving that context so that you can recall that person. Uh, right. is, that that would be really helpful. I've I've done some voice work. The only book that I narrated was my own, and it was it wasn't a novel, so I didn't have to do any character voices. Um, I would think that it would be hard to just come up with so many unique sounding voices, so that if the text doesn't give the indication of who's speaking, that the listener can still get a grasp on who's talking. Right. Well, you know, I mean, the different characters' voices. I mean, we. You really, you can create hundreds if you had to. Um, Again, technique, knowing your technique is going to take you a lot further than just trying to do it by yourself as as in anything, whether you're a dentist or whatever. But um, there's a thing called the voice ladder, and it goes from the top of your nose down to your groin. And it basically is, you know, the full belly sound and you go up and you go up and you go up and you go up, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, so you've got all those steps on the voice ladder. You've got every time you change your body's posture, your voice changes. Um, What was the other thing I was going to say? The mentality of the character. Sometimes I just move my mouth like way over to the right. And that sounds different than if I'm just talking straight out of the front of my mouth. Sure. So you can honestly, you can create a lot of characters if need be. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting, too, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, speaking hunched over and that sort of thing. I had uh, Kevin Ty on last week and he does a lot of ADR recordings in his place. And he said it's it's really interesting to watch because people, the, the actors that come in, they will not work the same way that they did when they were physically doing the scene. Huh. And it makes a huge difference in in the outcome because you you don't have that physical motion. If your if your mouth is pointed to the ground, that's going to sound completely different in the mic than if you're facing the mic to do your line. Absolutely. So it's harder Absolutely. to match, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, and obviously, I'm sure that you've done some ADR over the years. Yes, a little. Yeah. <laughs> but, I've done uh, done a more dubbing actually in ADR than I've done my own uh, ADR. Really? And that's even harder because, you know, you're trying, either they're speaking another language or you're just trying to match up as they speak, you know, the speed, you've got to get their speed right. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's challenging. There's really a lot to it. I mean, I think people tend to have the perception that you just go into a studio with a cup of coffee and you sit down and you read for an hour and a half and you're done. No. For the audiobook <laughs> or ADR? For ADR. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, it's it's physically exhausting, really, because you're trying to, you know, make that pace and make it as close to the other person's lips movement as you can or your own lips movement. I mean, just because you did it doesn't mean you can just do it instantly exactly the way you did it the first time. 
Right. And I think, too, about, uh, you know, I picture John Goodman doing the the recording for uh, Monsters, Inc. And there's so much physical motion that his character is is performing that, again, if you don't match that or come reasonably close to it, it definitely affects the visual versus audio. Uh, and I can't watch stuff like that. If it, if it doesn't match, if it doesn't at least make sense, I just can't even watch it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's kind of like goes back to that basic thing where they tell people, if you're on the telephone and you're smiling, people can hear it. Yes. They can hear you. And it's, it's true. It's weird, but it's true. And if you're joyful and full of energy and your arms are flailing, um, they can hear that too. They can see it in their mind's eye. Yeah, you should be able to feel a smile or a frown. Um, you, the emotion is conveyed in so much more than just the spoken word. It has to be brought out. And that's why it's reading an audiobook is really being an actor more so than it is just being a good reader. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you've got you've to help people visualize. So when you're saying, you know, a sentence and melting butter is in the sentence, you should be saying melting butter. Mm-hmm. So they can visualize that the word sounds like melting butter. Right. It should be felt as much as heard. Yes. Well put. Thank you. <laughs> Every once in a while, I come up with a good phrase and then I forget it. Oh, well, many. <laughs> now, you've, you've done a ton of audiobooks. Is there any that you really kind of gravitate to, anything that you prefer to work on? Well, um, I, you know, I, it's kind of like music. I like everything. Um, there are certain books I'm more proud of, you know, because I think they help people. I've done a lot of horror books, which I just love because it's fun, fun, fun. Um, you get, you know, monsters and mysteries and ghosts and things like that. And so that can be fun. I've done some kids' books. Um, but the ones that I'm just kind of proud of, I just, one just came out is called uh, Deep Living. Um, let me see if I can pop up the exact title. Yeah, Deep Living with the Enneagram, Recovering Your True Nature. Uh, and it's all about sort of looking at the way you think a little differently and sort of pulling back and saying, is that a healthy way of being and living? Um, That's sort of like in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Um, That one I'm really proud of, uh, happy about. There's one called The Children of Now that is about um, very, very uh, disabled children. You know, when they're born so disabled, they can't talk or, you know, they're in a wheelchair or whatever, um, that they are the most evolved beings on this planet. They're so loving. They're so nurturing. They're so complete within themselves. I mean, it's a, I love that book wow. um, because I think it's probably true that they are the most evolved humans on the planet because they're nothing but pure love. Right. Um, the other one I really love is called Facing the Truth of Your Life. And it's another sort of a just a, take a look at your life. You know, look at the way you've interpreted your your history. Is it correct? Um, or the way you interpret your life today, is is it correct? Uh, and I'm just going to say one more because I, I, I'm proud of these. Um, the, and another recent one I did was called Unmasking Prejudice, Silencing the Internal Voice of Bigotry. Mm-hmm. And um, this woman, her name's Dr. Melody Hilton. She goes all over the world trying to dispel prejudice and trying to show people another way of looking at other people instead of saying, I'm so much better 
instead instead of that saying, hey, we're all human beings here. Let's respect and love each other. Um, those are the books I love the most. Well, and, and the thing that they have in common is that every one of those is just a beautiful message. You know, it's it's one of those things that gives us an opportunity to look at ourselves and see how we can do better. We It, it seems like everybody's pointing the finger at everybody else and saying, you need to change, you need to do this. But how many people are looking inside themselves and saying, maybe I also need to be a better example? Yeah, right. And it's not easy. And, you know, we don't feel good about ourselves if we see something we don't like. But the the cool thing about if you see something you don't like, now you've seen it. So that means you can start making it different. Right. Well, it t- but it takes a real honesty w- to for oneself to see who they really are instead of this, you know, uh, I, I kind of equate it to you could take a picture of yourself and you can post it on Facebook or you can take a picture of yourself. You can clean up your skin. You can clean up your hair, the background <laughs> yeah. so that it looks like this, you know, everywhere you go, you're taking these flawless pictures. But you also look more like a plastic person because those apps are not very good. And it's always obvious when people do that. But I think right. it's kind of the same thing. It's like you can see yourself the way that you want to see yourself or you can actually do the things that make you be the person that you want to see yourself be. Agreed. But you have to be really honest with yourself to be able to make those changes. If you're not allowing yourself to see that you're less than perfect, um, you can't change it. True. Very true. And, you know, some people go their whole lives that way and that's okay. I mean, we all have to, we have to walk our own path and who am I to say you're, you shouldn't be walking that path. That's very true. It is very true. And, and everybody has their own way, but if you want to improve who you are. There are so many opportunities to do that. And I want to get into your um, your work as a life coach, because I think you are just the absolute perfect person to be in that line of work. But before <laughs> we do that, I do want to backtrack a little bit, um, because I want to talk about, um, while we're while we're kind of on acting, I want to talk about your, uh, your work as an acting coach. Sure, I'd love to. Um, I've been at teaching for about 20 years on and off here and there, you know, as a guest teacher. Um, About 10 years ago, I started my own studio. It's called the Studio for Actors here in Phoenix, Arizona. And, uh, you know, I love it. And I love my students. And I do teach uh, technique. I teach Stanislavski, Meisner, Method, and Michael Chekhov. Um, And I combine, and improv, and I combine all of that in a course that sort of intermingles them from easiest to more difficult. And we work on creating characters um, with technique so that that character, I don't think, I think acting is such a bad word because you shouldn't be acting. You should be that person Mm -hmm. so that when that person is crying, you're crying, you're not acting, you're crying. So instead of pretending to be that character, you become that character. Yes, just for that. I mean, I'm not talking about possession, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm just saying you, like I just said before, you know them so well, you're not pretending to be them. You're being them and letting them feel and speak through you. And when they are crying, it's like watching a Hallmark commercial. Sometimes they make you cry. Well, if you're really listening to your character and you're in the moment, you're going to cry. Mm-hmm. Right. Very much so. Yeah. Um, So anyway, that's my style. But I do want to just put in there real quick that one of my students just was uh, nominated for an Emmy. (gasps) Really? Really. 
That's awesome. Well, congratulations to your student. That's fantastic. And congratulations to you because you helped them get there. Well, thank you. Um, his, his name was Mar- is Mark Grossman, and he was uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actor in Young and the Restless. Oh, that's very good. I, you know, I, I think I've met Mark or our paths have crossed somewhere. Yeah, you probably did because he was in the, he studied with me for at least a year and then Mm -hmm. he moved out to LA a couple years ago. I can't remember anymore, but. Wow. I didn't know they were even still shooting soap operas. Uh, they, they, the Emmys actually were on television, no gathering. Mm-hmm. So the Emmys, um, the nominations came out before the lockdown. Right. Um, so they were shooting up until that point and then they, uh, had to shut down, but they still had the Emmys. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just over the television and that was all. Right. But I, I mean, I didn't realize that soap operas were still uh, in production. I thought that they had all kind of bit the dust by this point. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, no, apparently not. Uh, this one was The Young and the Restless. It's still going strong. I I haven't looked at a soap opera in so many years, I can't tell you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I mean, growing up uh, in, in the, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, soap operas were huge. That was daytime oh, yeah. television. And Absolutely. Uh, I, I remember, you know, uh, being hooked on Days of Our Lives. I wasn't really big on General Hospital or uh, I was going to say All in the Family, um, All My Children. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but Days of Our Lives was the big one. And sometimes I would come home from school and I would ask my mom, hey, what happened? You know, how did Stefano die again? <laughs> Who came back from the dead? You know, you know, my father was a big, tough, strong farmer type guy. Uh-huh. But every day, I think it was at one o'clock, he would come in from the fields and he would watch as the world turns. Oh, yeah. I remember that one, too. Every single day. He couldn't live without it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Because those people, they kind of become your family in a way. Yes. yes or an extension of your family. Um, you just can't yeah. interact with them. But what I really have to say, people make fun of soap operas all the time for how ridiculous some of the plot lines get. But writing five hours of storyline every single week 50 weeks out of the year, because, I mean, they do have a couple of breaks here and there. Uh, That's ridiculous to keep. Otherwise, it's just like, okay, well, I'm going to go over to Sally's for for lunch tomorrow. And no one would care what was happening. It has to be storyline, not just events. Exactly. Such huge respect to the writers of those shows that can keep those stories moving forward all the time and not just make them mundane and day-to-day life. Agreed. And, you know, think about the actors who get their lines the day before, a couple of days before, and every single day they have to create that character and say those lines. Um, that really blows my mind. What I'd love to know, and maybe maybe you have some insight on this, is how do they, because they have a very, very tight window to, to get their show out, how do they get the dialogue down that quickly to be able to portray it naturally? You know, that's I think that they are just very amazing actors, hardworking, um, committed actors who that's all they do. Uh, I talked to Mark a little bit, you know, when he got his nomination and to congratulate him. And uh, I said, you know, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's exhausting. That's all they do. They don't have a life beyond getting their lines, studying their lines, being on set, shooting their lines. Right. <laughs> you know, um, it's. You know, God bless them. 
Well, and they have to be at the beck and call of the shoot all the time because they might have uh, a, a, an entire week where they're in every episode or, or half the episode. And then they might go two weeks and not even be on the show at all. It's really, right. it's, it's a life. It's, that's not even a job. Right. Exactly right. You know, but if you're an actor and you love acting, then you're happy. Um, you know, he said he, with this pandemic and such, you know, they've been closed down for quite a while. And he said, I can't wait to get back to work. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, it's it, as, a, as a creative of any kind, that is your life. That is who you are. And to not be able to have that fulfilled to the normal capacity that you're used to, especially if you have a job like that, it just takes so much away from from you feeling like a complete person. Exactly. Now, when when you're working on a project, do you have uh, strategies for dialogue memorizing? Mem mem I, I can't speak today. Dialogue memorization. <laughs> uh, I do. You know, I, well, you know how we generally you're just pounding it into your head during the day trying to, you know. Um, but my big trick that works for me every single time, and I teach my students this too, is, you know, right when you go to bed, and I'm talking about right before you turn off the light. Uh, you take your script out and you don't try to memorize it. You just look at every single word and read it. But you're really looking at every single word. And then you turn the light out and you go to sleep. Hmm. And what happens for me is I wake up the next day and I'll be darned if I'm not way more memorized than I was the day before. Well, I have heard that we can control our dreams. And so maybe that's kind of an extension of that. Maybe. I don't know. But it really, I mean, I would not never not do that because it really works for me. Yeah. I remember uh, in Die Hard 2, Robert Patrick, now this would have been before uh, his uh, role on Terminator 2, but he uh -huh. just had one line in, in Die Hard 2 and the line was a sitting duck. That's all he had to say. Uh -huh. And I think about, okay, he probably flew in three days early, sat in his hotel room all day long going, a sitting duck, a sitting duck, a sitting duck, <laughs> just trying all these, you know, all these different methods. And I have no idea if he really did that or not. But not being an actor, I think if I were to try and be an actor, I think I would obsess over every little thing. Is that common? Of course. I mean, everything is common when it comes to creating. Um, but I'll tell you something, even if you have one line, and yes, you're going to try to figure out a dozen different ways to say it. The most important thing about saying that line is what are you thinking as you say that line? Mm -hmm. Because if he's thinking you're a jerk and I hate you and I'm going to kill you, he's going to say a sitting duck differently than, oh, you're so funny. You make me laugh he's going to say a sitting duck very differently again, right? right? Yeah. So it's all about, and you know, that's subtext. Um, what are you thinking changes everything. And if, even if it's one sentence, if you know what you're thinking, that's going to guide you in saying it really well. So it really comes back to don't be acting, be, be, be in that person's life. Right. You have to think in character. I think I, I know it was Michael Caine. Um, who said that when he's shooting a film and he's got the character, he knows his character, and, and he's in his trailer, he waits in character. <laughs> mm. He does the crossword in character. He drinks his coffee in character. I mean, that's about as great as it gets. Well, you have to, yeah, I mean, that's immersion right there. Now, right. if he's playing a serial killer, don't do that. 
for your visitors that come in. Oh, I'm sorry, I got to kill you. Right, yeah, I have a destiny to do. Do you mind helping me out? <laughs> Uh, but but then I've heard of people like Will Ferrell, where people have this uh, perception that you're not supposed to talk to him. But from everything I've heard from people that have worked with him, he's a very generous person. He's, he talks to everybody on the crew. He's not really uh, locked off. But yet he has to go out and give these intense performances where he is really immersed in his character and everything he does. And... How do you how do you get in that mindset so quickly while having all those distractions from your trailer to the set? Well, you know, everybody's different and some people can do that and some people can't. Um, all I can say is he probably knows his again, I'm repeating myself here, but he knows his character so well that, you know, he can be friendly in himself and, you know, chat, chat. And then he gets to the set and he takes his mark. And right before they say uh, action. I'm guessing um, he's probably going into his head, remembering who he is and how, he, you know, what his history is or what the scene is about and whether he's, you know, angry or he's just kind of getting his head wrapped around what's about to happen. So you go from, you know, haha, everything's great. And you sit down and you're like, okay, now, and this is very Meisner, you know, he'll say, just prepare yourself, go into your imagination, get your, he called it warming up the car. Mm. Um, so maybe that's what Will Ferrell does. Maybe he's just brilliant and he can just pop in and out. I don't know. It is, it is to me as a, as a non-actor, very, very impressive. And, uh, I, I remember, uh, shooting a film with Ellen Muth, who was uh, the star of the show Dead Like Me. Oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, we were just laughing and joking and talking. And then she goes and shoots this intense scene where, you know, she has to be terrified. And I'm like, how do you how do you just do that? <laughs> you know, but I believe yeah. that she uh, she did the Meisner stuff as well. Well, it very well could be because, you know, that is one of his basic teachings or one of his major teachings, I guess you could say, is, you know, and that's what he called it. I'm quoting him warming up the car before you attempt the scene you have to what emotion is going on you know imagine yourself into it get your character ready get everything into your head you know go there be there and so that when they say action the car is warmed up and you're ready to go right well it does make a lot of sense it's just amazing to me to see how quickly people can can process that and become transform into that person so quickly yeah. Um, I'm curious though, because, you know, you have a, a space where you were teaching people and now obviously with the lockdown, it's much more difficult to do that. You can't really teach somebody with a mask on because you're not getting the entire sense of them. Um, how, how is it working doing it remote? Well, you know, it's okay. Uh, I think it's always better to be in person because you can, uh, you know, acting is about body language as well, you know, right down to your toes. Um, but, you know, it works well enough and the, the facials and the visuals are there for me and the questions and the answers are the same and working a character, you know, the first part of that is doing the, what I call the work. What's their background? Um, how do they feel about this, that, the other thing? Um, let's make some choices about how this character comes across. You know, are they, uh, Johnny Depp's a great example of a Chekhov actor. He's called himself a Chekhov actor. Uh, uh, combining two separate things to make yourself more dimensional. So you're, you know, you're, a, like you said, I'm a cop, but I'm also a woman with feelings. 
and I'm able to combine that to make a more interesting dimensional character. Right, right. And I, I just, I would think it would be a challenge in part because there's only so much you can do sitting in a chair. And then if they get up and, and try to move around and, and, you know, really morph into that person, uh, now the, the dialogue sounds different because they're moving around. So it's not being picked up on the microphone as well. Um, you're not really getting to see them in, in the same way you would if you were sitting in front of them. So I would, I would imagine it does pose some challenges. It does. And, you know, everybody is sort of sacrificing right now. So, and we're all doing the best we can. Mm -hmm. um, it's better than nothing. Right. That's for sure. It seems like the important thing right now would be to keep up your chops, try and move forward where you can, but don't, don't lose yes. the ground that you've made so far. Absolutely. I have one character, uh, one character, uh, one student who, you know, she keeps asking me for a new monologue. She's just working monologues after monologues. And then uh, when she's done, she'll call me. <laughs> That's how she likes to do it. And uh, she'll, perform the monologue over the phone and then we'll kind of tweak it and talk about it. And, you know, there's all kinds of, like you said, to keep your chops sharp, um, you can just work with monologues. You can, a lot of times I tell my students, get a, uh, a compilation of the best plays ever written and uh, read them out loud and read every single character, create a character. Every time that you get a new character, be a new character. And that's a great way to stay sharp. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's so many uh, options and opportunities out there for an actor. It's really an endless array of things that you can explore. And everything that you explore, whether it turns out well or not, I have to think that you can learn something from. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, let's talk method for a second. Um, method teaches, if you go out into uh, to a bank or a grocery store and you're waiting in line, you should be studying every single person all around you because there's a character in every single person. Hmm. You know, the way they walk, the way posture, uh, the way they talk, the way they treat other people, a funny thing, a twitch, you know, uh, <laughs> something odd. Everybody has something. And so as an actor, Method says, study everyone you see because you will. I mean, and I've done it a few times. Like nobody would, if I get that character, People would say there's no human being on the planet that would ever do that because it's so bizarre. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> but they are out there. People like that are out there. And that's not bad. No, not at all. And I think that whatever art you're in, you can find different things in everyday life. I had a friend who uh, was in a uh, very progressive metal band, very in intricate music. Uh, everybody in the band was incredibly talented. And, and he was working in a grocery store and he was looking at the way that the milk was set on the shelves. And he took the number of milk cartons and turned that into a, a progression that he put into a song. So oh, the wow. beat was all based on the number of, of that and the order that they were in. And I'm like, you know, if you if you really just open yourself up to it, you can find something to work with in any medium anything that you look at in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Michael Chekhov was a really great, you know, kind of underrated. No one really knows about him that, but he was, I call him the magical coach. Um, he was active in the forties and the fifties in America, but you know, one of his exercises is to say, look at a tree and take the posture of that tree and see how it makes you feel. Mm. Uh, look at a park bench 
take that posture. Look at the architecture. How would you stand if you were that building? Right. Um, see, see how that makes you feel. Well, like you said, it's everywhere. Right. And you could also take that a step further and think about something really tall, like the Canadian National Tower in Toronto. And while it looks like it's a a, a straight, tall thing, it actually bends quite a bit with the wind. And you could think about, you know, how how do different things manipulate me in ways that I can and can't control? And then you can take that and turn that into something. I mean, there's opportunity just everywhere. That is brilliant, Scott. Brilliant. Thank you. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know where that came from, but, <laughs> but there it is. <laughs> so before we move on, on to the book, I have one other question about this. You talked about uh, your, your student that, that is focusing on monologues, and I hear that a lot from actors, that they're, they're always looking for new monologues. What is it that, um, that they're looking for? Why are monologues so important to an actor? Well, I mean, there are mono- when you're actually a working actor and you're in a movie or a play or even Young and the Restless, for that matter, um, there are monologues. And monologues are generally very intense. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of notes. In other words, you're, you, this emotion happens and then you go down and then you might go across. And it's not just one thing. So they're very difficult and they're very powerful. So you need to know how to perform. If you're going to be paid to do this job, you, you, know, you should be able to give us a strong monologue. Um, the other thing, you know, for people who are not at that point yet, but when you're in an audition, many times they'll say, do you have a monologue? Mm-hmm. And uh, the important thing about picking the right monologue is make sure it shows more than one emotion. I mean, I would say at least three emotions. To, because you want to prove to them that, see, I can act, I can be angry, I can be, you know, a heap of, you know, dead lettuce on the floor, and I can be funny all in the, in a minute. Right. And that proves to them that you sure as heck can act. Well, sure, yeah. And, and would you want to pick something that uh, relates to the film that you're shooting? So let's say that you're auditioning for uh, a film about inner city gangs. Would you want to tailor the monologue to reflect that subject matter or would you want to stay away from it? Well, honestly, I would say because a a really good monologue takes time to create and make it wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, And most auditions is like, oh, next week or tomorrow or, you know, you don't have a lot of time. So if you try to just grab a monologue and prepare it, it's that might be a little dangerous for you. Um, But what I would suggest, and as far as I know, it's the norm, even in the L.A. and New York market, is most professional actors have at least three monologues. They have a comedic, a dramatic, and a uh, classical, which doesn't always have to be Shakespeare, by the way. There's lots of classical out there, Moliere, um, just for example. But um, And they have that, those monologues are polished to a diamond quality. So if they say, do you have a monologue? I sure do. It does, and it doesn't have to be in respect to the, the work that they're auditioning for. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if it's a dramatic movie, I, yeah, I'd pull out my dramatic monologue. If it's a comedic movie, pull out your comedic. But you want to shine. You want to say, you know, this is the best that I can create. Mm-hmm. But you certainly wouldn't go to uh, an audition for a, a serious drama and do a comedic monologue. I wouldn't, um, but if that's if, if that's all you have, sure. 
because ultimately what you're doing is you're trying to prove that you can act. Right. Whether it's dramatic or comedic or classical. And, you know, a lot of times, uh, from what I understand, some uh, L.A. and New York actors even have what they call an abstract monologue, which is just, you know, kind of modernistic, um, hard to understand, weird, wacky. But it's just another thing that you can say, see, I can do this, too. Right. Well, that, yeah. So you kind of like a, uh, a a multi-tool that you can show a variety of your talents. Exactly. Because exactly. even if they, they don't cast you necessarily for that film, that could leave an impression on you for another film or another project or a friend's project that they have coming up. And, uh, you know, that could be something that would lead you to another gig. Yeah. And that happens all the time. I would think so. Yeah. And, uh, and I would imagine that monologues are very, very helpful in the audition process. But uh, it, the one person I can think of consistently who has built a solid career on monologues would be Al Pacino. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he'd be easy to top. I don't think so either. Um, you know, I mean, he's just brilliant. And apparently, he, you know, he is a master of giving different takes. You know, when you said, how do you create different characters? I mean, he just boom, 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 does all these different takes. That's my understanding, what I've heard. Um, but yeah, uh, and there's, uh, and think about this, you know, the one man, the one woman plays. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest monologue you're ever going to get because it's an hour and a half, two hours, and you're the only one on stage. Very true. Very true. I had uh, Alison Arngram on the show earlier this year, and uh, she does a one-woman show, and I was really hoping to convince her to come to Vegas and do it. And uh, she was she was interested in it. And then, of course, you know, everything shut down. And uh, so I'm still hoping that that's going to come through. But from the, the bits and pieces I've seen of hers, it's it's very, very well done. Oh, that would be exciting. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm so, you know, that I'm so impressed by a person who sits there or stands there for an hour and a half to two hours and just creates this world and never takes a break. I agree. And I, I think even to be an actor who walks on for that one scene of, of giving somebody a clipboard, I think it takes a certain strength as a person to be willing to be filmed, be doing this with other people, um, where everything that they do can be judged, especially in today's social media world. I really applaud anybody who does anything. But when you look at that kind of an effort, that is, you are the sole responsibility of your success or failure, and you have to pay attention to what's the audience reacting to? Do I need to change things? Okay. Um, do I need to change things up? Are they listening? Are they engaged? You have to be on the go the entire show. Exactly. And that's 100% 100, 100 emotion. You know, it's all got to be there. And that they must be exhausted after that. I can't even imagine. And then and then they have to go and do a meet and greet afterwards. <laughs> right. But you know it's um it's on a high. I mean, whenever you perform, especially in front of a live audience, it's there's a high there that can't be beat. That's very true. As somebody who's performed on stage as a musician, um and as an actor, I can say that there definitely is nothing that you can possibly compare to that. Right. It's a very unique feeling. And um, yes. knowing that you've connected with even one or two people in the audience, um, that's a huge thing. But of course, you know, when you see the entire audience give like a standing ovation after a performance or something, there's just nothing in the world like that. That's right. It's like you're completely full. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 
Um, now, I would imagine uh, being a life coach probably helps you uh, with your students because you approach, I would imagine that you approach it with that sort of empathetic way, but, but I'm sure that there's times where you have to be harsh and a little more direct, but do you think that it helps or hinders you to, to have that part of you involved in everything you do? Well, I mean, it helps me. First of all, I mean, I don't believe in harsh criticism or yelling or demeaning. Um, if somebody does a really horrible job, I would say, you know, that was really good, but let's move forward. And I want you to be even better. Mm. I want you to be an A actor. I said, I want you to, you know, I always kind of do that because they tried, they did their best. And now let's try to make it better. That's all I will ever say. Let's make it better. I like um, I've, I've left acting classes crying, and I'll be darned if I'll ever do that to one of my students. Oh, that's um, awesome. That, there's no need for it. Well, the thing is, too, is that I, I think about the way Beethoven used to teach, and, and he was always noted as being a very harsh teacher. And I, I understand that. But it seems to me that you're really pushing people is probably going to push them out the door and away from what they're they're desiring to be in the first place. I think if you you could be honest, but you could be supportive at the same time, like that method, and encourage people to get better, and they'll keep loving their art as opposed to it being something that, you know, they look back on and go, "I'm so glad I don't do this anymore," or "I hated it," or, yeah. or something like that. Right, right. So that's kind of my philosophy. Um, but I, what I found is that uh, I can really help my students with stage fright issues. Um, low self-esteem, confidence issues because of my, you know, studying uh, life coaching. Mm -hmm. So that has real, that's what's really been a boom for me is that they'll come in, you know, some are confident, some are strong, some aren't, some have issues, some, you know, they look at things, I think, in a way that causes them to have stage fright. So I said, let's look, you know, you're, you're feeling this way, but if we look at it from a different angle or a different perspective, Hey, that's not so bad, is it? And I love to see that light when that light bulb goes on and I get a student who says to me, uh, I used to hate cold read auditions and now I love them, love them, love them. <laughs> you know, it's my heart just bursts. Oh, sure. I would imagine, too, that you're. As an instructor, you're also looking at them as a person and not just what they're doing as an actor. You're kind of seeing, seeing how they are as well as the character that they're portraying. And maybe you can identify things that are going on with them a little more easily. Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's a good point, because you can see sometimes when an actor has a block and there's a, a personal reason why they can't reach a good performance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm really gentle with that. And I'm, I just say, you know, I think something's holding you back. You don't have to talk about it with me, but I don't think you're going to be able to get to a certain place in your acting if you don't deal with this feeling or uh, whatever. And they'll almost always say, that is so true. Hmm. You know, I've always had, I've had this kind of in my way in life. And I mean, there's been a lot of interesting breakthroughs. That's awesome. I love that. And that's why I think you're one of the best people to be in that position, because you are going to be looking at this with both sets of eyes, the actor and the life coach. I would I would guess that the two biggest things that hold people back are probably being self-conscious and uh, about how you know they appear. 
but also the other thing is just being afraid to let loose and really give it all. Yeah, yes. And, you know, there are reasons for that, whether it, you know, we've all been affected by teachers, parents, the religious systems um, telling us not to do this and not to do that and uh, to be respectful and controlled. And, you know, you don't get angry and such and such. And it translates over into some people's acting where I can't yell because I was taught ladies don't yell. Mm -hmm. And I tell my actors two things. Um, Kathy Bates, who's an Oscar winner, she said, if you're not able to make a fool of yourself, you can't be an actor. Mm, that's so true. Yeah, right? Yeah. And the other one is Meisner, uh, the coach, who said, if you feel like you have to throw yourself on the floor and chew on a chair leg, then you better throw yourself on the floor and chew on a chair leg. <laughs> right. So if the inclination is there, just go with it. Right. And sometimes it's not as easy for some people as it is for others. And that there are reasons for that. And it's the way they were raised. Would that, though, would that could that be affected by the particular set that you're on? Like maybe there's a director that just wants you to do things as it is on the page. They don't want to improv. Um, can that kind of cause a conflict there? Well, you know, if you're a good actor, you give the director what the director wants. Mm -hmm. um, unless, I mean, you know, some A-list actors can argue and stomp their feet and say they won't do it. Um, but in general, you know, at a certain lower level, hey, if that's what the director wants, you've got to give it to him. Right. Um, I don't think fighting is going to do you any good. It might get you fired. Uh, and that's where I think sometimes I see a really good actor in a really bad performance. I'm talking like A-list actors. Um, and I think, you know, the director must have just said, I really want you to do it this way. And because this is such a great actor, what happened? But doesn't you know? the actor kind of know what they're getting into? I mean, there's there are things where there are rewrites, new scenes are added, and there might be something in there that makes somebody uncomfortable. I get that. But in general, they read the script before they sign the contract. They kind of know what they're getting into, don't they? Sure, sure. And, you know, uh, it's money. I mean, if somebody's going to pay you 50 grand, you're, I wouldn't say no to that um, unless it was something really against who who and what I am. Right. Um, you know, it's, you are driven by that. You got to pay the bills. There are certain things that I think are, are completely understandable. And I've heard a lot of cases where, and, and this has happened to friends of mine where they've signed up for a film and then they get on set, they're isolated from the world. And now the director's like, yeah, you're supposed to do this scene topless. Oh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. I absolutely understand pushback. You, you know, that's completely not fair for them to put you in that position. That should have been discussed before anything was signed. So that exactly. kind of stuff I can understand. But in general, right. I, I think there is, at least with some people, probably that diva attitude of, well, I need to assert some authority as the lead actor in this film. Well, you know, different strokes for different folks. Um, you know, some sometimes it's not worth the battle. Sometimes it is. I mean, it depends how strongly you feel. Um, you know, every scenario is different. But I mean, if I'm in a film and the director says, I really want you to do it this way and it's not against me, my ethics or anything like that, then, you know, fine. Um, but uh, the topless thing, I just if anybody is out there who's listening, that's an actor. I just want to say if that happens to you. The very first thing you need to do is call your agent. 
Your agent will handle the situation. It was not in the contract. It was not told to you ahead of time. And you, they have no right to fire you or force you to do the topless thing. Um, that's the end of the story. And your agent will do the dirty work. Your agent will be the bad guy. What about people in independent film, though, people that they don't have anybody to go to? Well, I would say two things. Um, if you have an acting teacher that you trust and love, call them and they will help you get through this. Um, if you don't, you have to decide. Uh, and this is something I tell my actors as well, almost in the first class, is decide now. Will you do nudity? Will you portray smoking, drug addiction, pedophilia, murder? Know now so that when you're on a set and they ask you, you have an answer. Well, that's a good thing. You have to know. Well, you should know to an extent what your own morals are, but but who you're willing to be as you become that character. Right. And what you're willing, because, you know, that takes you right off balance and you might do the nudity and then you regret it the rest of your life. You need to know ahead of time so you don't get thrown off balance. Right. And if you're in, in an independent film and you're getting a hundred bucks or 500 bucks, and they say, well, we're going to let you go, then now you have a decision to make, right? Well, there's that. But I think part of the fear, too, is that, well, if I, you know, I don't want to get a reputation of being difficult because then nobody's going to cast me. But you should never have to put up with being treated that way to to have a right. career. It just it, That just shouldn't even be a thing. Right. And, from, you know, what I understand, I mean, I know there's the, all the, you know, Weinstein crap, and that's a whole different topic. Um, because they were doing things outside the set to get the job. Um, but on the, I mean, my understanding is um, it's kind of like 16-year-old boys. You know, they'll keep asking you to go further and further sexually. Um, but if you say no in general, you know, that's okay. But I had to try. Right. And it's kind of the same thing in the film industry. If you're making a film and they say, oh, we want you to take your top off. And you say, no, no, I'm not doing that. And it wasn't in the contract. They're like, oh, okay. And they move forward and you have no reputation of being a jerk or, you know, not easy to work. It, it That is a myth. Right. No, very, very true. It's not going to ruin your reputation. But I think that's part of the, the perception and why people end up doing things that they don't want to do because they're so afraid that their, that their career, that their dream is going to be crushed by some nobody director that no one even knows who they are. Right. Exactly. And that's the thing you have to keep in mind. And Think about how many directors, how many hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of directors there are on the planet. Um, they're not all communicating with each other. Right. Yeah. It's not like there's you know, this network where you just your name goes on a list and they scour right. this list for everyone who's auditioning. You know, you know. exactly. But I, I want to ask you about one more because this just this just occurred to me while you were talking about it. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the movie The Shining, the Stanley Kubrick version of, of The Shining. Yes. Uh, so the the everything that I've heard about that movie, they talk about how horrible Stanley was to Shelley Duvall to keep her in character, to keep her shaking and off balance the whole time, uh, mm. really kind of pushing her to be almost a method actor. What what do you think about uh, something like that? Because I know that there's directors that do that. They will say things to you to kind of throw you off balance so that you can go and shoot a scene where you have to be off balance. Right. Um, it's a technique. Um, I, you know, I think that that's 
they're not trusting the actor's ability to create a great character. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, I'll say different strokes for different folks. And maybe the actor said, you know, I like that. Keep it up because it makes me a nervous wreck. And I mean, we don't know what really went on. Sure. Um, so if that, he's like, okay, I can do that, you know, <laughs> um, or maybe like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock apparently was harsh as harsh could be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I just think, you know, unfortunately it's like not trusting your actor's ability and maybe the actor wasn't displaying enough. Right. So the director was like, well, I got to get this out of her. Um, I don't think it's a good thing. I don't recommend it. I don't condone that treatment, as you know, I'm not that kind of teacher. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but and, and you're absolutely right. We don't know what the progression of it was. The first couple of days, everything might have been fine. And then they might have sat down and had a talk or a series of talks. And as it progresses, he's like getting harsher and harsher because he's seeing that that's what's bringing it out. I mean, we really don't know. So I want to be completely fair about that. I'm just using that as an example, thinking about that sort of process. I just... If, if you're hiring an actor, you're hiring them for their ability to be that character. They pass the audition, they pass the rehearsals, and it, it just seems when you're at that point, if they're, if they're a good actor, you shouldn't have to do that kind of stuff. But I suppose there are circumstances where maybe they're just, they're, they're just not in it like they were in the auditions. Yeah, and I mean, that's why I say we don't know the whole story. Um, so it's really hard to say, oh, Kubrick was a you know, jackass or whatever. I mean, maybe he was, I mean, it's so hard to, to know. Um, but I don't, think, I, I don't like that technique. I think the actors should just be able to work themselves up. If Again, if you have a technique to fall back on, it's the easiest thing in the world to become emotional. Now, maybe some actors don't have strong techniques to fall back on and it takes other ways. That's all I can say. Well, and as long as, and, and, and if it's agreed upon too, then that's certainly, you know, that's certainly fine. Uh, it just right. seems, it seems weird to me as a non-actor, but, you know, sometimes maybe you, you didn't realize how intense the role was going to be. And then when you get there and you're doing it, it's just so much more immense. And then you start shutting down because you, you're like, wow, we're isolated. They can't bring in anybody else if I mess this up. And you start feeling yeah. that pressure. I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Yeah, it's just, you know, almost sounds like a dysfunctional family (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. And I'm sure that the isolation probably in a shoot like that did not help. No, I mean, you can let, you know, you can let that affect you as well. And I mean, uh, if the, you know, director is very intense, you can let that affect, you can absorb all kinds of things to get yourself in a certain emotional place. Sure. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to see so many different techniques to end up at the same destination. And I think that's one of the really cool things about really all facets of entertainment is it's not just one road to get to the destination. Absolutely not. And, you know, there are people like you say, who maybe Will Ferrell, he just can pop in and out. Who knows? Yeah. Um, I would say that, I mean, I know for a fact that he studied at the Groundlings. Um, so he has studied, and I don't know beyond that what he, how or what he's studied, but, you know, he has studied. He's not just a guy off the street that, oh, I'm, I'm a natural. Nobody's a natural. You, to be really great, to be, you know, among the best, you may have a lot of natural capability, but until you have technique, you're never going to be. It's like, what do they say, that 10,000-hour rule? basketball players, musicians like you, 
you know, you've put in well over 10,000 hours. Yeah, and I, that's, I probably, you know, <laughs> that's the difference between the men and the boys or the girls and the women, you know, you have technique. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the number of hours, it, it's how you spend them. You know, if if I were to, you know, I, I'm learning to be a, a bass player. I've been an, a, an entry level bass player for about six years now because I haven't really sat down and put the time in. But you know, you can sit there and you can practice on your one string or or whatever you're going to practice. But if it's not focused practice, if it's not stuff that challenges your current skill level, then it's just time spent. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, I want to I want to talk to you about one other thing because on top of all these amazing things that you do. You know, you're an actress, you're a life coach, you're, you teach acting, you do audiobooks, you come up with all these really cool character voices. Um, you wrote a book. Yes. <laughs> can you, can yes. you uh, tell us about that? Sure. And um, my book actually is all, it's just pure life coaching. Um, that's how, it, where it came from. It's not an acting book. Um uh, but I did graduate from the Southwestern Institute of Healing Arts as a life coach. And uh, I, I was life coaching quite a lot back in those days. And, um, you know, I, I things would come like, you know, how you said, I don't know where that came from, but it just came right out of my mouth. <laughs> well, that happens to me, too. You know, you get an intuition or a thought. It's like um, inspiration. You know, you didn't make come up with it. And I was writing them down because I thought they were great. And after about a year, I had this huge stack and I said, oh, my God, I could write a book. Um, so I did. And it's called Power Tools, Ideas You Can Use to Disassemble Fear. But it's also about living life to the fullest, you know, uh, taking those risks, feeling good about yourself, not worrying about judgment um, you know, if you can play one note right on your xylophone, then God bless you. And if that makes you happy, who cares? Right. Um, that kind of stuff. Um, I can read you something from it real quick. Like I have oh, these yeah. things I call, I have these things called big thoughts. They're like, it take up the whole page, but they're only a few sentences and they're all throughout the book. Um, I'll just read this one popped out. So let's trust the universe. Um, it's called a rumination. The birds waiting on my dry and silent fountain flew away when I turned it on. Just when they, what they waited for was bestowed upon them. Just when something good was about to happen. Do you fly away just before something good is about to happen? What if you bravely stood your ground and joyfully accepted those incoming gifts with open arms? Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it's so true because I, I've also seen uh, this, this really brilliant meme of two people that are digging a tunnel. And the one uh, is about to strike it rich and he's, you know, he's just still picking away with his pickaxe. And the other person is about to strike it rich, but they're tired, they're done, I give up. And they're walking away right when they were about to, to hit gold. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of that. I think that we just tend to uh, burn out or because we don't see a certain level of success or growth that we want to see, we tend to bail. Yeah. Or if you're wanting something and it finally is coming to you, you get scared and you push it away. Very true. I think there's right? also a fear of realizing your dream because once you've attained what you've been fighting for, then what? 
Yeah, it's, you know, the challenge of life. Very much so. But now I want to say, uh, because I live in Vegas, uh, this strategy does not apply to slot machines. Do not sit there and keep playing because <laughs> you think that you're about to hit the jackpot. Okay, that rarely happens. Not a so good gambling true. strategy. Yeah, so true. Everywhere else in life, absolutely. And and I I think, too, about the birds as the people that you know, uh, try to keep you down because they're not maybe living their life to the fullest. And as soon as they see that you're starting to emerge, they kind of filter out of your life a little bit because they know they can't keep you down anymore. Exactly. And I do touch on that in my book. Um, There's very, you know, most of my chapters only two to three to five pages long. And, you know, yes, I touch on that as well. Absolutely. Or if they're not doing that, like, you know, disappearing, they're trying to pull you back. Come back down here where the rest of us are. Right. Right. And it's so sad because if if everyone could get past the fear and just go for the things that, that make them happy in life. And I say that with the caveat of things that do not hurt other people, because there are things that make people happy that hurt other people. I don't mean that. Exactly. Uh, but I think if we could just all focus on what we're doing, support each other, and let's all get there together. There's plenty of room for everyone. If we had 100,000 more actors that wanted to, or people that wanted to become actors, then we would have 100,000 more productions would be created to accommodate for that. There is absolutely room mm-hmm. for everybody. Agreed. But it, there's so many people that just can't seem to uh, want to do anything but be angry and and hurtful to others. And I'm sure you have a hard time with that mentality. I do. Oh, I very much so. I mean, it just breaks my heart. You know, I just keep and and it's childish, but I keep saying, you know, why? Why? You know, life is hard enough as it is. Why do you need to fuel the fire of ugliness? Mm -hmm. You know, it just, I don't know, it's beyond me, but Do you think that some of that is really, I mean, obviously a lot of it has to do with upbringing, but do you think that some of it almost might even be genetic? You know, your family has a history of hating these kind of people. There's something that that gets woven into the DNA generation over generation, and then you're born with it as part of you because we we aren't born hating anything. Right, exactly. So I don't think it is. Well, I guess I, I, guess I answered my own question. Yeah, <laughs> we're clean. Sl- when we're born, we're clean slates. Mm-hmm. You know, we're you know right on us. Um, I mean, there might be some genetic disposition to short tempers, or you know, I don't know. That's that's the ultimate question, and science hasn't answered it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, what was I going to say about that? Uh, oh, also, um, I, I read a book a while back about brain injury, whether you fell off your bicycle or you're in a car accident or someone beat you up or, you know, however someone might get brain injury. They have found that almost every criminal, serious criminal has had a brain injury. Really? So, you know, that could be part of it, too. I mean, you can't you can't fight that. <laughs> right. Well, that's um, very true. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But um, having been raised in a very abusive family, I can tell you that a lot of people do uh, keep the cycle going. You know, I was abused, so I'm going to abuse. But, you know, my number one priority when I became an adult was peace, peace, peace. Yeah. 
you know, I just did not want any part of that lifestyle. Well, and and you're right, though, because people will, I've heard people say things like, well, my dad beat me and I turned out okay. So no, you didn't. <laughs> if you're thinking that's okay to do to somebody else, you did not yeah. turn out okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, and, you know, everybody has their own perspective and I can't, what is it, 6 billion people on the planet now? Something like you know? that, yeah. Um, 6 billion realities. Mm-hmm. Um, we all see it differently. Yeah. Very true. And, and I think even if it isn't, uh, doesn't become ingrained into the DNA, it's certainly input into people through their very, very developmental years. Because if that's the mentality of, say, a family member or the, the family, like in your case, um, that gets pushed into our heads very, very quickly. And that becomes the way that we see the world. And that's why it takes generations of getting away from it, of changing your thinking and starting new uh, lines of, of how we look at things for it to really get better. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think is a big part of, you know, what, what is needed in human evolution. That's where we need to go. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would normally ask if you have any projects coming up, but with everything being kind of shut down, uh, you're really kind of restricted to what you can do. So is, is it pretty much uh, mainly audiobooks and teaching right now? Yeah, it's uh, teaching. Uh, in fact, I have a Skype session after I talk to you. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, teaching on Skype and audiobooks. And the reason why the audiobooks are still going is because when I go to the studio, it's just, you know, the studio manager and me. Right. Um, and they're very, very, they wipe down everything and super clean everything to the point where, you know, it's like a hospital room. But um, yeah, so the, those are keeping me going. So right now, as far as the acting community, I, I don't even know of any projects, filming projects that are going on at all. Yeah, I, I've seen one that's happening in Phoenix. I think they've wrapped up production already, but uh, it, it looked like a very, very small closed set. Everybody was was wearing masks except for the actors. And it, it really is a just a weird time to be doing anything. And, you know, we don't want a bunch of movies where everyone's wearing masks. And that's what our, <laughs> no. this, this generation is putting out, <laughs> you know. But at the same yeah. point, I think people are kind of thirsting for content and for new things because... There's only so much that's coming out. Even in the music world, a lot of bands are delaying their releases because they can't to, uh, do the tour to support it. Right. That's so true. And you're, that's absolutely true. The new content isn't there by any means. Um, and, you know, thank God for Netflix and Hulu and all that. Uh, you know, people are staying entertained that way. Um, but, but that's yeah, going to run out at some point because they only filmed so much before the lockdown. Right. There's only right. so much to edit and release. Then it comes to a lot of their original shows like Stranger Things is who knows when that's going to come out because they didn't, as far as I know, did not finish shooting that before every production was shut down. So, right. you know, thank God there's millions of movies and things out there already. But I think that becomes kind of, you know, how, how many movies can you just sit there and watch? I, I got to move oh, around no. once in a while, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big reader. I love to read. So I've got like four or five books going at the same time. <laughs> um, and, you know, working around the house, making the house a little, you know, sharper than it was before. And I have a garden going and oh. uh, I've got a dog that I adore and she just is love and entertainment all rolled into one. And I got a great husband. Yeah. Um, that we just, we get along like best friends. So 
I'm blessed with a lot of good things right now, even though it's a tough time. And you put a lot of good into the world for, for what you're given. You, you definitely are one of those people that uh, doesn't hoard it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're going to put the links to those books that you recommended and to your work in the show notes as well. And I, I hope that people check it out because I think that you're such a, a dynamic and caring person. You're, you're really one of the people that I would say is a model for how I would like to see society to be. So thank you for being you. Oh, thank you. And you know, you know, I feel the same way about you. We've been dear friends for a long time. And there's a yes, reason. <laughs> that's true. I miss having uh, coffee with you. But it's hard when you don't live in the same city. <laughs> right, right. But uh, as a, I just want to quote my 95 uh, year old cousin, she said, we will meet again. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. We definitely will. And if not, we can always do like a uh, Skype coffee. Sure. I love it. All right, darling. Well, thank you. You take care and uh, have a great lesson. You too. You have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What did I tell you? Just a, a warm ray of sunshine, this one. And it was a, a great time speaking with her. I'm sure that you guys enjoyed the interview as well. She's, uh, she's got a lot of great things to say. Very knowledgeable, very talented. And she has no problem sharing that with others, which I love. Check out her work. Check out her acting school. I got a couple demo reels in the links as well. Thank you, Alexandria, for taking the time to come on the show. Love you dearly. And for the rest of you... Come back next week for my very special episode. You fans of rock and roll will be uh, especially excited. Feel free to reach out to me at scott at scotthaskin.com. Please remember to leave your ratings on uh, iTunes, Apple Music, anywhere you're listening to the show. It does help me a lot, and and it's uh, great to see that people are enjoying it. See you guys in a week. In the meantime, stay safe. Be great to each other. Cheers. Cheers.